Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Tom's Talmudish. Today, we're studying Masechet Sukkah, and we continue to seek the source for the heights of the Sukkah. A brief recap and a little bit of an introduction for those who are joining us for the very first time. The Torah ordains that we dwell in the Sukkah for seven days each year. This happens when everybody is taking their lawn furniture inside, winding down their summer activities. We go outside. And in doing so, we demonstrate that it's not for love of the outdoors, but rather for love of Hashem, as we observe His sacred commandment and commemorate the divine protection that we enjoyed for four decades upon the exodus from the land of Egypt prior to our entrance into our eternal ancestral homeland, Eretz Yisrael. The sukkah, of course, reminds us that we're always in the embrace of Hashem. And it's only by God's protection that we're able to survive the sands of time and the various trials and tribulations that have challenged our people time and again. The sukkah, like every mitzvah, has to have technical definitions. Poetry, homily, mystical and beautiful ideas are important, valuable and nice. But all of this can only be appreciated and achieved if we have clear and specific instructions. The Torah itself, the Pentateuch, does not give us the specific instructions of virtually any mitzvot. And that leads us to the obvious, overwhelmingly clear conclusion that Hashem, who has expectations of us, and doesn't expect us to simply worship Him by creating a God in our own image and intuiting what you might like and assuming that's what the Creator wants, Hashem surely told us exactly what He expected of us. And so this is the clearest of proofs that there must have been an oral tradition. Hashem must have told us the meaning of a sukkah. He must have defined it for us. Things like, what do you make a sukkah out of? What's overridingly important? Is it the walls or is it the cover under which we seek shelter? Is there a specific place, an area? Maybe a geography or perhaps a specific milieu in which a sukkah has to be erected? What is the size of the sukkah? And of course we know that whenever you're dealing with anything of material dimension, size will matter. Well, of course, size matters for the sukkah. Can a sukkah be too large? Can a sukkah be too small? Is there a minimum requirement? Some people don't feel comfortable going into a room with less than a 10-foot ceiling. Would they require a 10-foot ceiling in the sukkah? People got used to living in bunkers during the war years. Would that be good enough? A crawl space? These, of course, are the issues that the Gemara has to deal with in a very, very technical fashion. But the amazing thing about Torah is all of the Torah is one. And we've been reaching for various expressions in Torah, biblical expressions, that might give us the ability to understand with clarity and with surety 
exactly how high a sukkah should be. We've already established that the sukkah has to be ten tefachim high. We established that based on the dimensions that the Torah gives us not for the sukkah because it doesn't give us dimensions. The sukkah doesn't have to be a particular size. It can be many sizes, but there is a modicum size. And so the Torah does give us the specific, precise, and exact dimensions of the ark that housed the Decalogue or the Luchot. Ten Tfachim. But really and truly, in Amma being six Tfachim, and the height of the ark was an Amma and a half, which gives us nine Tfachim. Where did the tenth Tefach, or hand's breadth, come from? The Gemara told us that's because the kaporet, the covering, you know, that gold slab that you may have seen pictured on top of the proverbial Ark of Testimony with the cherubim, that's the one. That gold slab had to be a tefach, a hand's breadth thick. And so an Ark that's nine tefachim high that has a covering that's a tefach high, gives you the total of 10. Our Gemara has been embroiled in various proofs as we cross-examine the possibilities for learning the dimension of the kaporet, because whilst the Torah does give us the precise and exact dimensions for the ark, which was like a box, the Torah does not tell us the diameter or thickness of the kaporet. The terminology used when describing the Kohen Gadol's entrance into the Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur was that he would perform his sacred duties and rites, El Pnei HaKaporet. The word Pnei in Hebrew means face. And so the Gemara says we can draw a line between the face of the Kaporet and the various other expressions in Torah where we find faces mentioned. In last week's Gemara lesson, we went from monster birds to the patriarch Isaac. And the Gemara picks it up where we left off, on the subject of faces. But we're not going to remain tethered. We're not going to remain on planet Earth. Now we're going for an extraterrestrial or outer body spiritual journey. We're going to be combing the heavens and looking at you guessed it, the angels. They also have faces. And what would be the appropriate size for the face of an angel? And maybe that can become a source for the diameter or the thickness of the kaporis. So, the Gemara has told us, introduced the teaching of Rev Huna, one of the great Talmudic sages, who said, that Pnei Pnei Gomar, that we use this Talmudic form of exorcis, which is called Gezerat Shava. You can't make these up by yourself, but if you have a tradition that goes back from generation to the one prior, all the way back to the first teacher of Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu, who learned the oral Torah from none other than God himself, Rav Huna had preserved the sacred tradition that ordained that there's a gezerat shava. We take a look at the word pnei in one area of the Torah, 
And that leads us to a juxtaposition of another word, pnei, somewhere else in the Torah. And one becomes instructive for the other. And if we have a tradition for such a gzera tshava, it becomes meaningful. Rav Huna said, there's a gzera tshava on the word pnei, face. And we thought, we thought we're learning this from the face of Isaac. And since we don't know what kind of man Isaac was, whether he's a large man or a small man, we always have to assume the smallest common denominator, not the largest. As the Gemara instructed us, tafasta meruba, lay tafasta. If you overreach, you don't grasp at all. Because who's to say it's the largest? Instead, you have to establish the lowest common denominator. And that, well, that can be grasped and attained with certainty. With no further ado, we are now on Mesechet Sukkot, the tractate that deals with the holiday of Sukkot. And the first chapter of Mesechet Sukkot is called Sukkot. And it deals with the eponymous source of the name of the holiday, the actual Sukkot structure. So the Gemara now says, Vinelef, and let us suggest that we learn this Miponim Shalmailo from the faces on high, ethereal faces. These are the faces, as we will learn, learn, learn in a moment, of the angels. Now it's very important for me to interrupt and tell you that from a Torah perspective, angels are not people with wings. I know that's how Hollywood depicts it, and that's how it's illustrated in a variety of children's books. But really, a person with wings, even if he or she is graced with funny-looking robes and a halo on their head, is still just, well, just exactly that, a person wearing funny robes, having wings attached to them. That's not an angel. An angel is not a person with wings. An angel is an angel. What is an angel? <laughs> What's a radio wave? What does it look like? We choose to depict radio waves in a specific way, but truth be told, radio waves aren't seen in the physical sense. What color is long division? And how does calculus taste? Scrambled eggs? Roast beef? These are ridiculous suppositions. Mathematical equations aren't color-coded, neither do they have a particular taste attached to them. Well, my friends, if you think it's preposterous, and it is, to apply color or taste to a mathematical equation or to an intellectual concept, let me tell you that it's positivity, positively preposterous or preposterous on steroids to apply the human imagery in its physical corporeal sense when you're speaking about non-corporeal, non-physical, non-tangible beings. Yes, angels can assume some kind of image because we human beings have difficulty relating to concepts. But the angel is not a picture or an image that is framed or stuck within the human being's imagery any more than long division isn't purple. There's a story told about the fifth Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab. And he's in a coach. And he's heading off to try to recoup his health. He was a very frail person. 
and he would go to the Viennese Alps where there was thinner, healthier air. He would go through various treatments to try to regain his physical or corporeal robustness. And so he was heading out on one such occasion. And it was, I guess what you would call in 21st century lingo, a shared Uber. It was in a coach. And there were other people in the coach as well. Everybody had paid their share, and they would be taken to the same location. The person sitting next to the Rebbe was an intellectual, a very, very erudite, professorial type. But whilst he was great when it came to ideas and philosophies, it doesn't seem that he excelled in areas of faith or necessarily tradition. He tells the Rebbe that from his perspective, angels are mumbo-jumbo. You know, Peter Pan, the tooth fairy. It's, it's uh, stories, silliness told to children. He says, nobody sees angels. Can you see angels? You're a Rebbe, you're a holy man, you don't see angels. So they don't exist. So the Rebbe says to him, you know, we're all in this coach. We're heading in the same direction, but we have different purposes in mind. He says, you and I are going to regain our health. We're going to spend some time in a wholesome and materially salutary environment. The coach driver, he'll probably spend the night, but then he'll turn around and leave and take his next passengers. He's not going to that location because he wants to be there to vacation. He's going to that location, well, because that's what he gets paid to do. And then the Rebbe said, there's the horses. They have a sack of oats hung before them. And that motivates them because they can smell the oats. And they're happy to get lunch. And the coachman has a perfectly honed method in which he dangles the sack of oats right in front of the horse, close enough for the horse to smell, but not close enough for him to be get a, able to get a mouthful. And so the horse, who's got the intelligence of a horse, horse power is a good thing if you're a motor vehicle, if you're a race car. If somebody's brain power would be, well, like a horse, I'm not sure they'll be passing their LSATs. The horse doesn't really understand that the oats are essentially being dangled in front of him. And in his simplistic perspective, if he runs fast enough, he'll reach the oats. And just to ensure that he doesn't get... Every once in a while, the coach person will pull the pole back just enough for the horse to be able to get a mouthful, and then he'll extend the bag once again. And so the Rebbe Rashab finished his description of the various attitudes and approaches to the journey being taken. And he said to this intellectual, tell me, because the horse doesn't understand that you and I 
are on the way to a vacation or holiday, there are no angels. In other words, when it comes to things heavenly, we're not that much smarter than the horse. We have our blinders on. We have our limited perspective based on the range of our human experiences that doesn't define angels. I'm sharing this little Hasidic adage or tale or story with you because it's so important for me to emphasize that the Gemara is not telling us that angels look like people or that angels have faces any more than they have a heart, a stomach, or a diaphragm. The angel doesn't have kidneys or toenails. It's all euphemism. It's all allegorical description, not to be taken literally at all. So actually, we don't necessarily embrace the illustrations of people with wings. They're foolish. It's a metaphor. And creating pictures like that makes people think that they can actually see or imagine what an angel looks like. You know, I've seen many of these pictures. I've even seen some of it in motion picture. It never really frightened me much. It didn't look scary at all. It looked like sweet. There was a man named Shimshon. He was a Nazarite. He was given the news, his parents were given the news of his imminent conception and birth when an angel came and spoke to his mother. And his mother conveyed the message back to Shimshon's father. And Shimshon's father didn't believe her. And when he saw an angel, he was terrified. I say just tell us she was on a higher spiritual level. She could absorb the imagery, whatever that means. He couldn't. It's not a person with wings. Having said this, though, Rabbeinu Aaron Halevi, also known by acronym as the Ra'ah, the Ra'ah says that when we say Panim Shalmaila, do not heaven forfend ascribe corporeality or physical dimension, imagery, or appearance to angels. He says it's all, it's, it's, it's a euphemism. It's an anthropomorphism. We're, we're using this terminology. And here's where it gets really sticky. We're using anthropomorphical terminology, we're using metaphor, and we're trying to ascertain physical space or size. It's a, it's a little bit of a strange fit. But the thing is this, if we are to use metaphor, then the size or dimension is a part of that metaphor. And because it says, Panim Shomayla, because when the angels are spoken of, the terminology that's used is a face. So as such, we know that we can use the dimension of a face and apply it to the face of a box, which isn't a face anyway, any more than the face of a building isn't a face or a facade. It's euphemism. The face of the ark is a euphemism. And the question is, when we're using euphemism, when we're using metaphor, can we understand or reach a conclusion that actually dictates the technicality of actual space? And ultimately, it has to. You know, to me, when the Gemara does things like this, it encapsulates the essence of, of Yiddishkeit, of our 
divinely ordained sacred faith system, which is all about having a relationship with Hashem. Because on one hand, there's such incredible spiritual energy invested in every detail of Yiddishkeit. Every detail. But at the same time, Yiddishkeit, Torah Judaism, is comprised of so many technicalities. And the halacha ordains whether Hashem's presence is actualized or not. You know, we're speaking of the ark. The ark had a very specific space. And there's this expression of Dein Habadin between the poles of the ark. And it says that the Shechina, the divine presence, was constricted, if you will, or focused into that tiny little space. And since the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, HaKadosh Baruch Hu no longer constricts His presence to the narrow space between the two poles, but rather in the narrow strictures of halacha, the technicalities of Jewish law, which are ritualistic and ultimately sacred. They're God's laws. Following the halacha is following God's rules and God's laws. And yeah, there's lots of technicalities connected to it. And so the Gemara here says to us, we have euphemism about angels, but euphemism about angels can also teach us about the precise size or dimension of the kapora that was fashioned. Now, where do we see that angels are described as having faces? Let's go back to the saga of Father Jacob. We talked about this last week. In last week's snapshot, Father Jacob was taking leave of his father, the patriarch Isaac. He had just received the blessings as Esau, Esau entered the room purportedly to receive the blessings he thought were coming to him. Well, there was a lot of water under that bridge, but Esau was very unhappy. And that would be an understatement. He was so incensed and enraged he decided right there and then, Yaakov is going to die by his hand. But he didn't want to bring his parents grief. So he said he'd wait. After all, why get angry when you can get even? Yaakov, in the meanwhile, is sent away. Sent off to Iraq on a mission. Not a military one, per se. But Yaakov is involved in a lot of combat. A lot of close calls and difficult, even painful situations. People talk about a mother-in-law from hell. We don't know much about Yaakov's mother-in-law. She may have been a nice lady. He had a father-in-law from hell. Awful man. Laban. Lavan was his name. He literally tormented and abused, essentially doing everything he could to harm his son-in-law. And Yaakov perseveres. And not only does his conniving, dishonest father-in-law not rob him of his physical wealth, more importantly, he's not able to rob him of his spiritual affluence and of his holy heritage. Yaakov has had enough. More than two decades have passed. He's finally leaving and he's coming home, coming home to Israel. But his brother Esau, Esau has not forgotten. 
He's on a mission now. It's called search and destroy. Take no prisoners, he instructs his men. We are going to murder Yaakov. Wipe out his family. Yaakov knows all about this and he is fearful. The Torah records a very, very calibrated approach in which Yaakov employs diplomacy, which in the Middle East means gifts and fancy words. He employs military maneuvers by putting strategies in place, but before he does that, he makes sure to pray. And with this three-pronged approach, presence, prayers, and a willingness to fight rather than bow his head in submission and give in to Esau and die, Yaakov, the prayerful, fight-ready Jew, heads into the inferno. There's much to be said about this, and on the night before, a fateful event takes place. Some maintain that Yaakov had lost his courage and didn't want to face Esau, and Yaakov's angel, Esau's angel came to force that confrontation. Others maintain that Yaakov first had to vanquish the spirit, the angelic alter ego of Esau, before he could actually contend with the physical Esau, the man, his brother. At any rate, Yaakov does wrestle with an angel all night long. There's much to be said about that. Some of our sages saw that as metaphorical, allegorical. Many of our commentaries believe that there was a literal element to it as well. Certainly in Shutosh al-Mikra, when we read these literal verses, there's dust being kicked up. And Yaakov is physically limping with a dislocated hip in the morning. In the end, Esau is won over momentarily. For now, he's not ready to kill Yaakov, although later he regrets this. Yaakov has sent many gifts in Esau's direction. Esau says to Yaakov, I don't need these gifts. I got lots of money. And Yaakov insists. He says, yeah, I know. You keep these gifts. It's good for you. He says to him, it's because seeing you, it's like seeing the face of an angel. Now that's what Middle Eastern diplomacy sometimes looks like, telling your adversary that they're like angelic, fantastic, amazing, awesome, and wonderful, and Esau is tickled pink. But there's a deeper meaning here. In the writings of our sages and in the commentaries on the actual Chumash, Yaakov is conveying a message to Esau meant to instill a sense of fear. I guess the, the best way I could compare this to is name dropping. Yaakov just happens to mention that, oh, no, it's fine because I, I saw the face of an angel yesterday. And Esau's like, huh? You saw an angel? Uh, what did it look like? Oh, nothing, Yaakov says. I, I wrestled with him all night. I, I beat him down. It's not important. And his... His intention is for Esau to hear that, oh, my brother wrestles with angels. Yikes. I don't even know what an angel looks like. If he can wrestle with angels, I'm sure he can contend with corporeal adversaries. Maybe this is a fight I won't win. That's why Yaakov's name dropping. And as the Gemara says, he, he states, and Yaakov says this to Esau, not name dropping per se, but, you know, that, that idea. Kira'ois p'nei elikim. It was like seeing the face of God. 
You're like a god. I saw the face of your angel, your alter ego. Vatir And you have allowed me, been benevolent to me. You've been gracious. So in that case, face of an angel. If we have face of an angel and we have face of an ark, we can derive the face of an ark from the face of an angel. And the assumption is that the face of an angel is going to be larger than the face of a small person. We said when it comes to a human face, a human face at its smallest level is going to be a tefach, a hand's breadth. We don't know if Yitzchak was a large man or a very small man physically. So as such, we have to assume that we take the lowest common denominator, the smallest face possible. It must be only a tefach. And the Gemara now is querying back, says, who says? Maybe we should be learning from the face, the face that the Torah mentions in the same narrative, Yaakov, father Jacob, but not referring to his father, but instead referring to the angel he saw. Now you may ask, you may ask, so how do we know that the angel's face is going to be any different? How do we know that the angel's face is going to be any larger or smaller? Why would you think it's something different altogether? What are you going to ask? Well, I'm glad you did, because that's a, that's a fair question. It's a fair question. And in learning the Gemara, we, need, we actually need to answer that question to understand what in heaven was the Gemara actually thinking when it made this supposition. Maybe we learn from an angel. Maybe it isn't from the face of a patriarch, namely Yitzchak. So this is how the commentaries on the Gemara explain it. The Dikduke Seferim says this. He says, Jacob is a human being, Isaac is a human being. The verses cannot be disconstrued from their literal meaning. They were human beings. What is a human being? We presume we're human beings, they were human beings. Their spirits may have been titanic, but their bodies were bodies. So as such, we can only know that without knowing what kind of human being or body Yitzchak had, we can assume the smallest possible denominator. Tafasta maruba, loy tafasta, going back to the Gemara's logic, you can't overreach. So maybe he was a small person. And a person is always going to be a tefach. So an angel would not have the smallest of faces. Why not? This is what the Dikduke Seifrim reasons. He says, if we are to assume that the reason we use the terminology of face to describe angels who have no body and, of course, no face, is because we're bringing up an imagery that we should be able to relate to in some way, shape, or form. In theory, you can have fire without a wick and without any kind of fuel or container. In practice, what does that fire look like? The only way I can actually hold on to the fire is when I have container, fuel, wick, etc. I can throw ideas at you. I can, I can give you parables or allegories, but if you don't have any kind of technical image, how are you going to hold on to the idea? There's got to be some frame it's used to convey something which is actually beyond or transcends any kind of frames. 
So we're using the notion face. Why? Because we're trying to speak to people who only know of other people as a face. We don't talk to the walls. I, I saw an angel. Well, you saw the air? What'd you see? You saw electrons? I saw an angel. I saw a face. So the assumption would be that if we are to use a depiction, we use the average depiction. Not the smallest, but the average. Yitzchak, Isaac, is actually a human being. He's not a depiction. He's not a metaphor. He is a person. Was he a large person or a small person? I don't know. Nobody knows. We have no pictures of him. In fact, it's a Jewish tradition not to depict the faces of the patriarchs so as to ruin our perspective and think, oh, Isaac, I know what that looks like. I saw Michelangelo's paintings. So we don't know what Isaac looks like. We have no idea what he looked like. And because he was a human being, and we, knew, we know he had a face, we don't have knowledge if it was a large face or a small face. We can make the assumption it was for sure a face. So how big is a face? A face is for sure going to be a hand's breadth because he was, we don't hear of him being abnormal. And a hand's breadth is the smallest possible normal. It's not the average, but the smallest possible. That's because we're talking about an actual person who lived. However, when we speak about a depiction Depictions go by the median, the average, not the extremes. So it's reasonable then to say that the depiction of an average face is larger than a tefach. And if so, the tefach would be a non-appropriate space or size to use for the angel's face. It'd have to be significantly larger than a tefach, not the smallest person, but an average person. Maybe it's a tefach and a half, maybe two tefach, I'm not sure. The Gemara doesn't actually have to figure that out because this supposition is going to be shot down. The point is this. If the tefach, if the kaporet was called pnei, the face of the cover of the ark, was not the smallest common denominator of a face but a larger one, then maybe it was a tefach and a half, maybe two tefachim, as we'll see if we can go down this road. And in that case, our sukkah has to be a little larger. And if you're in a crawl space with enough to place schach, but you're only ten tfachim, you may be out of luck. You may have to find a creative way to elevate the schach so that you can actually have a halachic sukkah, which then becomes the embrace of Hashem's shechina, God's presence. The Pnei Yeshua has a radical suggestion. He says, since we don't know what the face of an angel would be, maybe the kaporot had to be as large as the room. Maybe the kaporet should have filled the room until the roof of the Mishkan, which would mean we have to have a really tall-looking sukkah, a 15-foot sukkah, 10 amot high, because that would be the kaporet. We know that the cherubim were 10 tfachim. Okay, that's a little more than an amma and a half, so you'd still need eight and three-quarter amot high. That's not 15 feet, 12 feet. Still a very large sukkah. This is the question. This is, this is our, our issue. And we're not sure because Rav Huna said he has Exeter Shava, but we're saying, Rav Huna, maybe, maybe it's another face in that juxtaposed tradition. The Gemara comes back and says, no tiki, no washi. This is not going to work. Tafasta meruba loy tafasta. Did we already not make clear that you can't overreach? And since we're talking about something that we don't know about, so we can't make decisions on unknowns. 
In other words, the notion that the angel had a face. And if he had a face, it was probably larger than the smallest face, probably an average face. In the end of the day, he says, we're coming up with precise information from a non-precise source. It says he had a face. So all we can know is that it had to be a face. And if you want to talk about size, it had to be the size of a face. And the only thing we can be certain of that when you use the terminology of face is that you mean minimal, it's got to be at least a tefach. That's all you know. We don't know more than that. And as such, the Gemara says, we can't use the angels as a source for the size of the kaporet. So my friends, the angels will not be teaching us how big our sukkah is. Having reached this point in the Gemara, where we know that, that the angels will not be giving us instruction, we turn instead to the winged cherubim. They seem like the cousins of the angels. The images, these little statuettes that were on top of the kaporet itself, the Gemara says, Venelef, and perhaps the Gezerah Chava of Ravuna was not from angels, but still also not from Yitzchak. Maybe it was Mekruv. Maybe it was from the figurines that adorned the cover of the ark. About those figurines, it also says the terminology face. In Parsha Truma, chapter 25 of the book of Exodus, verse 20, it says, V'hoyu ha-kruvim porse chnofayim The kruvim had their wings spread out above. Hovering, covering over the cover of the ark. Their faces. Their faces were one to the other. The faces are not outside of the kaporet, but in the kaporet. So if here you have your figurines, the faces face this way. We used the word face twice. And the word pnei shows up at the end of the pasuk, at the end of the verse. So maybe the angels won't teach us, but the gold figurines will, the cherubim will. There's an amazing man who lives in the holy city of Hebron. His name is Baruch Nachshon. Many of you may have heard of him or seen his phenomenal art. I had the privilege of being in his home a number of times and speaking to him. Amazing person. The Rebbe encouraged him to develop his artistic talents. The Rebbe told him that, in a sense, it was almost like his life's mission to redeem art from imkia klipis, from the depths of depravity and immorality, and use art in a positive way to convey a message of a message of non-corporeal, yet artistic spiritual expression. Not chas painting God or angels as people, but nonetheless using art to advance and to beautify our Yiddishkeit tradition. They never paid for his for his art lessons, I think we're at Pratt. They actually paid for it. They encouraged him. And at some point, they asked him if he's thinking of making a, an exhibit. 
And the Rebbe said he would like to see the exhibit. Anyway, this is documented. The Rebbe did, was after his heart attack, left his office and went to see the exhibit. And there are little snippets of video that have recently been released from that, from that visit. Fascinating, fascinating to hear how he talks about the way that Rebbe related to his art. I strongly recommend you watching it. Gem Media has a phenomenal series called 70. Tzadik Yifrach, events, people, places. You should see it. It's one of, I don't remember which number episode it is, but one of the things is he drew the, the Kruvim. He drew the Kruvim the way that people had traditionally been drawing Kruvim with their wings up like this. And the Rebbe said to him, that's not what it says in the Pasuk. It's not what the verse says. And the Rebbe went to him like this. He spread his hands forward like this. The Rebbe said, it says, Seichichim. They're resting on top. So we know about the wings. We know they were winged cherubim. We don't know really much about their body because it isn't described, although we do have a size, a height ascribed to the body of this figurine. But clearly, they have a face. Ah. If they have a face, then maybe the cherubim can become the source for the size of the sukkah. Because the Kruvim will teach us, or the faces of the Kruvim will teach us how thick the cover of the Aron was. And once we ascertain its diameter, bingo! We now have our sukkah hollow fully established. We know how much space has to be in the sukkah. So the Gemara says, V'neilof mi Kruv. it says, El haka you penea Kruvim. Towards the cover itself, the faces of the cherubim should be. So if so, the Gemara will want to say that it should be a different size of a tefach. Um, we don't know how large the face was. What's to say they weren't a tefach? So the Aruch Laner, Rab Etlinger, a 20th century Torah leader from the 19th and 20th century of, of, from Germany. Amazing, amazing genius. Amazing Torah chedusha novelty. The Aruch Lener says like this. He says that the average person is considered to be 18 tvachim, shoulder to ground. 18 tvachim. So the Aruch Lener says if he was 18 tvachim and his face is said to be one tefach, well the keruvim are asara tvachim, ten tvachim which means the cherub is half the height of your average human being. Because your average human being, who is 18 tfachim from soldier, has got to have a tefach for a neck and then a tefach for a face, is basically 20 tfachim high. And that works out. It works out. So if he's 20 tfachim high, then in that case, it would make sense that if the cherub is half, only 10 tfachim, then in that case, the Kuruv would have a face that's, if he's half the height, he would have a face that's half the size. So if a human face is identified as a hand's breadth, a tefach, then the Kuruv face should be identified as half a tefach. Aha! So now, if the, if, the, if the diameter, the thickness of the cover was only half a tefach, because it says Pnei Kaporas, and then it says the Pnei of the Kuruvim, then in that case, it would make perfect sense for us to say that the ark was nine tefachim high, 
the cover was half a tefach and the sukkah was smaller than we thought. Instead of ten tefachim, nine and a half tefachim will do. We're just saying. We're questioning. We don't know. And we have to be certain. We have to settle this before we move on. We got to know how high a sukkah is supposed to be. So the Gemara says, Omar of Acha Bar Yankiv. Yankiv says, Gemiri. This isn't spelled out in the scripture, but it's a tradition that's been passed down, Lemoshe Misinai. And the Gemiri is, Ein Pnei Kruvim Pchusim The faces of the Kruvim were not less than a Tefach. Now, I have to tell you, there's a lot of hay about this, whether or not. They actually are a tefach, or uh, is, is halacha meishem mesina or not? It seems that here we couldn't understand this in the in the notion of halacha lemoshem mesina in a literal way because we have no source for that. But rather, this would mean this was a fact, an established fact that we knew, a tradition that had been handed down, and that that was the tradition. The face of the kruvim was a tefach. Right? Can't argue with that. So, if the face of the kruvim is a tefach. In that case, the Gemara finishes off, and I want you to know, but Avhuna nami mihochi gomer. Avhuna did not learn it. That's really where his Gezerat Shava pans out. It's not the face of Yaakov. Forget the face of angels, that doesn't work. It's not the face of Yaakov. It's the Keruvim in the end who teach us the height of the Sukkah. Now you, of course, may ask, why does the Gemara have to say that? What's wrong with What's wrong with saying it comes from Isaac? Patriarchs can teach us. So the Merume Asada, the Natsalit Tzvi Berlin says like this. He says, the Gemara prefers to learn it from the Keruvim rather than from Yitzchak Avinu because a Gzeda Shava is always more effective if it's Miguf Hadovar. It's from the very same place. It's, we're talking about the cover of the ark, and we're deriving the cover of the ark from the faces of the Keruvim that were a part of the ark. Now that's rational. That makes perfect sense. To say that we learn the cover of the ark size from a juxtaposition to a man, albeit a great man and a patriarch, who lived centuries earlier, is not nearly as straightforward a logical juxtaposition as here's the floor of the, of the, the bottom of the, the cover, and here's the face. They're only 10 Tvachim apart. It's right there. You don't have to make juxtapositions that reach across the ocean or centuries when you can have a juxtaposition that's literally within reach, a hand's breadth away. So that's what the Marumi Asada maintains. That's why the Gemara prefers that. The Arach Laner, who we just mentioned a moment ago, suggests a little bit differently. He says, once we learn it from the Kruvim, so... It makes no sense for us to even question maybe we should learn from angels. When you say Yitzchak, so maybe Yitzchak, patriarch, maybe angels. The angels nor Yitzchak, none of them have any proximity to the subject at hand. There's no reason. In fact, both of them come from the same narrative, the story of Yaakov. One is the beginning of the story and one is 21 years later. One is Yaakov seeing his father, who was an angel on earth. And one is Yaakov seeing Esau's angel, who was the alter ego of a monster on earth. It, it, they're not really, if you will, 
any closer or further. And so we can't be certain if the Pnei is from Yitzchak or from the face of Esau's angel that Yaakov saw. However, the Kruvim, that's certainly closer. And this way, since the Gemara does not want to learn from the angels, it makes sense then that we'd be learning the lessons from the golden cherubim rather than from the patriarch Isaac. Because the patriarch Isaac has no more hold on this than do the angels. But the cherubim, they're right there. The Gemara says, once we've spoken of the faces of the angels, we should fill in the gaps a little and tell you, umai kruv, what is a kruv anyway? I know it has a face, but what does the word kruv mean? And the Gemara says, Amar Rabbi Avahu, Rabbi Avahu taught, kiravya, like a ravya. What's a ravya? A ravya is the face of a child. Rashi says, Venelef, I missed a bunch of Rashi's. Okay, I'll fill them in soon. He says, Keravya is like the face of a child. Shekane Bibovel in Babylon, where they spoke Aramaic, which is a derivative of the Hebrew language, a Semitic language, probably as similar as our French and Italian and Spanish. Liyunuka, Koyden Liyunuka, a child is called a Ravya. Now, before we go to Rashi, I just want to tell you that it's important for us to understand Rabbi Avohu's words. He's not suggesting that the Kruvya actually means a child. We know for a fact the Kruvya doesn't mean that, and we know that because the Chaf, Kruv, is part of the word. The way Rabbi Avohu is framing it, it's Ki, which means like, similar to. Ki Ravya, like a Ravya. But Kruv, the word then would be Ruv, or Ravya. And the Kruv would be, Kruv is really a Ruv, a baby, but it's kiruv, like a baby. And the word would be ruv, but the word isn't ruv, the word is kiruv. And kiruv, cherub, not a rubim, not a rub, but a cherub, a kiruv. And because it's kiruv, or kiruvim, it's obvious that Rabavo is not telling us that that's the meaning of the word kruv. So what does a kruv mean? Well, the, the Ibn Ezer, in his commentary on Chumash, simply says that a kruv means an image, a figurine. But Rebavo is saying that the terminology used for the figurine alludes to the face, that it would be like a child. The Kiruv has a face that's Kiravya. Incidentally, the Rashbam, the grandson of Rashi, says that the word Kiruv means birds. He says it means a, a bird-like image. So it was actually a body, a bird-like body with a human face. And so instead of being a figurine with wings, it was a bird with a human face, and birds have wings. So that the, the birds, the wings were natural. That's the dispute that we have between Rashbam and Ibn Ezer. I should tell you, only because we're talking about faces, that the Sephorno teaches us that the faces were one masculine and one feminine, and as the sages tell us, that it's like a representation of the relationship between God and the Jewish people, and that's metaphorized in the Song of Songs as, uh, well, romantic in terminology. But this is another subject that's far beyond the far beyond the limitations of our Gemara. The Gemara and so has come to its conclusion that we know now we learn from the Keruvim, from the Cherubim, not, not from the angels, not even from a patriarch. 
The Gemara now asks, Amr le'abaya, Abaya says, Elamiyata, but now the chsiv that it says, Pnei ha'echad, Pnei ha'kruv, Upnei ha'sheni, Pnei ha'odam, going now across moving across the prophetic board onto the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel has this incredible vision in which he sees angels, whatever that means. But the terminology, the metaphorical and allegorical terminology used anthropomorphically depicts these angels as creatures. Over there it says, one was like the face of a cherub, and one was the face of an Adam. So if you're telling me that they had human faces, and one, a karuv is a face of a baby, a big baby, a tefach baby face, but a baby face. And the other is the face of an Adam. But if Ravia is an Adam, why would Ezekiel say one is the face of a cherub and one is the face of a person? Cherub is a person. That's the Gemara's question. Karuv, I know Adam. A karuv is an Adam, as you just described it above vote. The Gemara's answer is, Ape Ravdavi, Ezekiel's vision depicts a large face, a mature face, an apizutra, a small face, a baby face. So one of them had a baby face, and one of them had a mature adult's face. And that's why the distinction between them is pnei kruv or pnei adam. But it doesn't mean a cherub has a face other than a human face. Let's review the Rashi's uh, relevant or pertinent to the Gemara that we just studied this morning. The Gemara says, Pnei Pnei Gomar, Gzeda Shova Gomar, Ubitsiparta like Siv Pnei. In the birds we talked about earlier, there is no mention of Pnei, so we're going on the approach of Ravuna that rules out the bird imagery. Tafasta Maruba, Bumoke, Shata Shemea, Afamuat, in a place where you can hear either the larger number or smaller number. You can't grasp the large number. Who says larger? Maybe it's smaller. In English, this is called the lowest common denominator. Your words lack integrity. In fact, they seem to be entirely dishonest. You're skewing the statistics, eh? That's what people do. They take numbers and skew them. You're skewing the numbers by assuming you're making an assumption. It's probably the larger number. Says who? So that would detract from its integrity. And integrity is what we're seeking here. Let's look at the face of the Kruvim, the Zutra Mitafach, that we would think that they are smaller than a Tafach, as I explained to you from the Aruch Lanir. The Gemara came back and said, After all, they are both equal. Why did the verse divide between the two? The answer of the Gemara says Rashi is Le'olam Kruv Nami Pnei Tinaku. Kruv indeed is the face of a child. The Zehu Chilukam. That is indeed the difference. Pnei Adam, the face of a person, Ape Ravravi. That's a mature face. Pnei Akruv, the face of the Cherub, Ape Zutri. Now, with this, my friends, it's now very clear that the size of the Sukkah has to be ten tfachim, because we now have ascertained with fair certainty the diameter, the thickness of the cover of the Ark to Kaporet, and thanks to the Kruvim who, thanks to the Kruvim who conveyed to us through the size of their face the diameter of the Kaporet, by virtue of which it's the Cherubim
who become our instructors for the size of the sukkah. And it's interesting because the Kruvim have wings which are sochachim, which are essentially sheltering, like schach, like the covering of the sukkah, but I didn't see that anywhere. I'm just, I'm just saying it's interesting that there's a commonality in the Hebraic verbiage or language. At any rate, with this, let me thank you for joining us today. And let me end with a hope and a prayer that before Sukkot arrives this year, we'll be sitting together in a much larger sukkah, the sukkah alongside the Beis HaMikdash, in which the Kruvim will be in their rightful place in the newly rebuilt third and eternal Beis HaMikdash, in the Kodesh HaKadashim, in the Holy of Holies. And there we will celebrate Sukkot in the sukkah of David HaMelech. May it be speedily and in our days. Amen. Thank you for joining.